Welcome to Red Star Radio. This will be the first in what will be daily updates brought to you about the Ukraine war and its subsequent political and economic fallout. If the Gulf War, as Jean Baudrillard once insisted, did not take place, then the Ukraine war, though it is indeed, of course, actually taking place, is presented to us in such a way as it could well be a dramatic production. This is what is being beamed to us every day through the televisions, through the radio, and printed on the front pages of our newspapers if you are in any of the leading advanced capitalist nations, or at least at time of recording they are still the advanced capitalist nations, just about. What you are being presented with is a narrative, of course, which is being constructed very carefully in the intelligence services and in the PR operations of particularly the London government, currently led by the failing Halloween mask on legs known as Liz Truss, and the Biden administration. It is a narrative whereby heroic, plucky Ukraine boldly defends its sovereignty against the evil Russian-Mongol horde, which is descending upon it because it dared to reach for the precious gift of European Union and NATO membership, surely something that all uh, nations must aspire to, too, because it is a doorway to unlimited riches. And that dastardly old Mr. Putin just couldn't have that. He had to suck Ukraine back into his horrific vortex of uh, Soviet revanchism, Tsarism, and the recreation of the storming of Europe by the Mongol hordes. All of that is, of course, only a slight exaggeration from what you will see every day if you turn on BBC News. ITN, Sky, CNN, MSNBC, or Fox. And, of course, there are more sophisticated versions of this if you care to open the pages of the New York Times or the Financial Times or The Economist, but it's basically the same story. Now, what I'm aiming to do in these daily broadcasts is bring a little bit of reality into the picture, because, of course, although Baudrillard's rather facetious claim that the Gulf War did not take place was an exaggeration to make a point, it is no exaggeration to say that the version of the Ukraine war that is being sold to the populations of the West, though increasingly many of them are rejecting that narrative, it is a narrative, however, that it is a powerful fiction and has many people adhering to it, specifically within uh, elite circles. And so what I aim to do with these daily broadcasts is bring some reality into the picture, a reality that is more about the squalid attempt by the U.S. empire to bring Ukraine permanently into its orbit, to use it as a strategic weapon against uh, the Russian Federation, the willingness of the uh, rotten uh, elite in Ukraine to prostitute their own country, to sell the Ukrainian people into the service of foreign powers and to sacrifice them for the benefit of those foreign powers. It's a story that, of course, nobody in the press corps of the British or American or French or German establishment particularly wants to tell, and that they are very aggressive about keeping firmly out of the ears and away from the eyes of the populations of Europe and the United States. I will begin by looking at the picture on the front lines and see what we can discern from that as to how the war is actually progressing before turning to wider matters such as the economic picture and the political fallout from the war that is ongoing throughout Europe and the United States and the rest of the world. Now, as of today, the 12th of uh, October, I'm recording this at 6.30 in the evening, the biggest news from the front lines in the East 
of what was Ukraine, now uh, recognized by the Russian Federation as its own territory after the referendums that went through in the past couple of weeks. Now, the big news coming out of there is twofold. Firstly, in the uh, town of Artemyovsk or Bakhmut, depending upon which version of the name you want to use, which is a town the Russian forces have been trying to take for a while. They've been very focused on taking it. The assault led by the Wagner Group, the uh, mercenary operation, uh, works mostly for the Russians and the Russian government uh, in some form or another. They played a very big role in the uh, the war so far, uh, headed by uh, Prigozhin. They have been leading the advance into Bakhmut, and apparently they are at the point now where they could be taking it within the next week or so, or even within the next few days. There's stories coming out of even Ukrainian source, sources now that the Ukrainian forces are getting ready to pull out of Bakhmut, which, if you look on the map, which I've uh, provided in the description, you can see that that's regarded by the Russians as a key strategic site and would mark a significant victory for them. Uh, given that also uh, in the past several weeks before the referendums and the general announcement of the partial mobilization, the stories coming from the front for the Russians were almost uniformly negative, and that there were big Ukrainian advances into um, the uh, northern region up near Kharkov, and some advances down, or some attempted advances anyway, in the Kherson region. The advance up to Bakhmut, particularly after the Russians uh, evacuated the town of Liman, uh, would be seen as an important step forward uh, at a time when there had been a series of what appeared to be setbacks. Whether these were setbacks or not is another question, given that the Russians appeared to be changing the nature of the war and preparing for another phase rather than just simply retreating because of superior Ukrainian firepower. It certainly seems now that there was a plan in place, but I'll come to that more in future episodes when I focus more on the military side of things. But so Bakhmut looks like it might be taken imminently by the Russian forces. Uh, there is apparently another Ukrainian attempt coming up to seize the Zaporozhye nuclear power plant. There's been several of these so far. Uh, often using uh, commando forces trained by the British uh, armed forces. And there's been several of these attempts to seize the uh, the power plant back. Obviously, it's a key strategic site, um, site of great value for the Ukrainians. And so far, all of these attempts have been defeated by the Russians with heavy Ukrainian casualties. There is apparently another one imminent. So I'll be up dating tomorrow as to how that one has gone if indeed it does materialize but in terms of the wider military picture of course this week we've seen the mass uh, attacks on uh, ukrainian uh, energy and water facilities this occurred mainly on monday and tuesday with over a hundred cruise missiles and smaller guided missiles and uh, micro missiles that were almost drones some of which have been designed by the Iranians and uh, apparently the uh, bought on license by the Russian government and produced in Russia because of course the uh, Iranians need as many of their own as they can possibly get to guard against a possible attack by you know who I'll give you a clue as to who that is it's a country who's which is led by a guy who keeps forgetting that he's the president 
But so the Russians have got their hands on thousands of these Iranian drones, which are very cheap to produce and, and apparently come in a variety of sizes, which seem to be very good at evading air defense. And this created a real problem for the Ukrainians for a while because the power plants that were knocked out and the electricity systems and the substations uh, created uh, power outages in Kiev, Lvov and other areas. And it's been pointed out by military observers that <clears throat> if the Russians were to carry on with this level of intensity, then it would pose a significant problem for the Ukrainian forces at the front. And this reveals one of the vulnerabilities, but also one of the advantages that the Ukrainian forces have had so far, which is that they seem to have access to superior communication and targeting devices because they have been given by NATO access to, of course, all the NATO spy satellites and, of course, Elon Musk's now very controversial Starlink satellite system. And they have been given the, the latest electronic communication uh, systems by NATO, and this has enabled them to actually respond with greater alacrity to Russian attacks than they would have been able to previously. So NATO forces clearly have some advantages over the Russians in terms of these integrated communication systems. But of course, if we get to the point where they can't charge the iPads uh, that they operate off and they can't use the uh, the mapping systems which are electronically powered because the power has all gone out across the country, then they're back onto analog, back onto working off um, hard copy maps again. So it's an advantage which is a potentially tenuous one if the Russians were to continue the work of seriously annihilating the Ukrainian electricity grid. And it, given that the Ukrainians have now said that they're going to stop exporting electricity, it looks as if the pressure that the Russians are putting on the electricity grid of Ukraine is starting to bear fruit in terms of shortages, outages, etc., so whether they move to decisively eliminate the Ukrainian advantage that they've got via um, the satellite coverage that NATO has given and them via the electronic warfare systems that they've got, it will be interesting to see how that develops. Apparently, one of the things that the Ukrainians are afraid of is that the Russians have uh, got a way of disrupting the satellite coverage from the Starlink satellites that they've been relying on. And this has been blamed on Elon Musk being some sort of um, FSB deep cover agent. But in reality, it seems that the Russians do have some kind of anti-satellite device with which they have been able to disrupt the operations of the Starlink system. And this, of course, renders Ukrainian forces on the ground more vulnerable because without that advantage in terms of their ability to um, see what the Russians are doing and uh, respond quickly via their usage of superior communication methods, then that places them in even more trouble given all their other disadvantages that they have on the battlefield. So that's an evolving story. Now, it also links in with, of course, the appointment of the first actual um, commander-in-chief on the ground in the uh, special military operation. This is the appointment of General Sergei Surovikin, who is a veteran of the Syrian campaign and is credited with achieving a great deal of successes against the various jihadist groups and ISIS um, that were operating freely within large areas of Syria, which they conquered from the Syrian government 
And it's Surovikin's time in charge of Russian forces there, in charge of coordinating things with the Syrian armed forces. His time there saw the reconquering of huge amounts of Syrian territory by the Syrian government and the driving to almost near defeat of these Western-backed jihadist groups. So he's a guy with a considerable track record. Now, it's noteworthy that he's the first man who's actually been appointed as commander on the ground in what is now regarded as Western Russia or Southwestern Russia, if you prefer. And he's in overall charge of the special military operation. There hasn't been an overall commander on the ground there before. It's been run by the Russian general staff back in Moscow. And the another example of fake news that was being run by the Western media was they were proclaiming that various generals, including a General Dvornikov, had been um, in charge of this special military operation, but none of them were. He's the first um, actual guy who's been appointed to command on the ground who's going to be making the decisions in the theatre of operations. And that signals a significant upgrade of this in terms of the need to put a guy on in who's going to be responsible for running this thing. He has apparently been given um, overall command of most decisions uh, that have been taken away from the general staff and given to him directly. So clearly there's a lot of belief in him from the Russian political leadership uh, to put that amount of authority on this uh, officer. And so whether this was all his idea, it probably wasn't. It was something uh, along the lines of this large-scale strike across Ukrainian energy infrastructure and communications infrastructure. It was something that would have been in the pipeline for a very long time, but it was accredited to him by various Russian military observers and people on social media in particular. But in all likelihood, it was something that was being planned for quite a considerable period of time. You don't hit that many facilities, and it says, according to Ukrainian sources, that there were over 100 uh, water and power facilities hit across uh, Monday and Tuesday. So you don't hit that many places just by you know a guy who's turned up for work on the Monday and decided, let's do this. It's obviously something that's been in the works for quite some time. There is speculation, of course, as to what is this leading to. Now, this leads us to uh, look at the successes so far of the Russian partial mobilization, according to sources within Russia and also military commentators inside the United States, particularly uh, former uh, Army Colonel Douglas McGregor and, uh, of course, Scott Ritter, the Russians could be mobilizing as many as 370,000 men, which would give them a total force of around about 500,000 or possibly slightly more than that, 550,000 when their mobilization is complete and all the troops are put into place, which would, according to most independent estimates, looks to be around about uh, late October, early November, perhaps. And then, of course, they will be ready for an assault of their own. And so the question is, are the Russians going to keep up this level of bombardment until they launch their offensive when they're fully ready for that? Or is this just a taster of things to come. Remember that at each stage the Russian government has looked for a negotiated settlement with the Ukrainians of some kind and it has now been confirmed that in March of this year one was actually close to being reached and that the Ukrainian and Russian sides in the Istanbul negotiations had almost reached agreement upon several points uh, which could have been developed into a full peace treaty but of course the European powers, the Americans, and of course the British were all opposed to that at that time, all thinking then they could 
somehow push Ukraine into defeating the Russians on the battlefield and, of course, obtain their long-cherished dream of actually destabilizing the Putin-led government in Moscow. This has now been confirmed by, by sources both on the Ukrainian and the Russian side. And so when you next see somebody in the British or the American or indeed the French or German governments bewailing the war in Ukraine and its horrible consequences, remember that this is something which could have ended in March and could have ended with an agreement that was very close to being signed between Ukraine and Russia. It was the Western powers, all of them combined, that conspired together to put pressure on Zelensky to not sign it. So this is a war of choice by the NATO countries, the most powerful NATO countries. But it is a war, of course, that they are forcing ordinary Ukrainians into fighting for them. Returning to the subject of the Russian mobilization, there are increasing reports coming out of Belarus of large numbers of military trains moving through Belarus to the uh, border point between Ukraine and Belarus. And this was, of course, a area which the Russians used as a staging post back in late February to uh, do their drive on Kiev. This time it looks as if they're bringing in more equipment than that and more men as well. And it was confirmed also this week that the new uh, Russian-Belarusian uh, combined command was being set up inside Belarus. And the Belarusian KGB, that's the successor organization to the old KGB of the Soviet era, they accused the Ukrainians of trying to train uh, Belarusian uh, exiles in terrorist tactics and also accused the Poles of having something to do with this as well, given the association there with the uh, Belarusian-US-controlled uh, opposition that both the Ukrainian regime and the Polish reactionaries have had, it's not beyond the realms of possibility that this accusation is true. The idea, according to the Belarusian government, is that they were going to launch terrorist attacks inside Belarus and try to seize one of the urban centers and, of course, create chaos behind Russian and Belarusian lines. The Ukrainians have responded to the uh, moves made by the Russian and Belarusian side by destroying some of the border bridges between the two countries and mining their roads as well and putting up anti-tank traps. So this looks as if, it, at the very least, the Ukrainian commanders and their NATO paymasters believe that there is going to be an assault coming towards Kiev. So it does rather raise the question of what the hell is going to happen when the Russian mobilization is complete and the Russian forces are all in place. Well, anybody's guess. I am not uh, on the mailing list for the Russian general staff as yet. So I can only make an educated guess upon this. And my guess would be that the aim of the Russian strike will be to, of course, first and foremost, to clear out the areas of Ukrainian troops, which they now consider to be part of Russia. So everywhere in Zaporozhye, Kherson, uh, the remaining parts of uh, Donetsk, People's Republic, which aren't yet under Russian and their allied forces control. But will they go further? Will they move on Kharkov itself in the north? Will they push down to Odessa? These are unanswered questions as yet. But given that the Ukrainians keep on ruling out any negotiations with the Russian government, and Zelensky said at one point, we'll negotiate with the Russian government not led by Putin, to which my only thought would be, well, good luck with President Kadyrov um, when he comes in. That's only partially a joke, by the way. So 
clearly there is not going to be a negotiation. Clearly, uh, Putin's position inside Russia is still very secure, despite the huge efforts at sowing doubt and chaos that the uh, Western propaganda operation has gone to great lengths to create inside Russia itself. Putin is still very popular. The war is still very popular, regarded by Russians as necessary, especially after the terrorist attack on the Kerch Bridge uh, earlier this week. So the question is, what happens now? Well, if you look at some of the statements coming from the emergency meeting of the G7 and also from Biden's recent interview, which, by the way, he dropped his crib sheet in and the interviewer, Jake Tapper, just handed it him back. So, um, Great example of a fearless press call there reporting the truth. But to Biden's interview, he gave some indication as to what is going to change and what's going to change is nothing. Same with um, the statements made by uh, Truss and the statements coming out of the G7 meeting, which is all about, we all support Ukraine. We all give Ukraine an integrated defense system. We all, um, that by that, I mean air defense system. And that's one of the things that Biden was committing to. It's one of the things that Zelensky was asking for. The idea that they're going to create a, an air defense system to stop the Russians launching these uh, enormous uh, cruise missile and drone attacks on Ukrainian facilities. There is a question as to whether they can actually do that, however, given that the bulk of Ukraine's air defense systems are still based on Soviet legacy equipment. It would require the Americans and the Europeans to replace the whole system in order to have a properly integrated setup, I would think, anyway. So that would be a huge undertaking, and it's not necessarily one that they can do whilst in the middle of a war and whilst in the middle of having being subject to constant missile attacks and air raids from the Russians. So I suspect that that's one of those propaganda things that the NATO countries say every time the Russians score some kind of particular success and Zelensky goes running to well, the people who told him to fight the war, to be honest about it, and says, I need this, that and the other. The NATO countries, of course, are not going to get directly involved in this. So what they do is they make a big flashy promise and say, oh, we're, we're going to give you an amazing air defense system. Vladimir, just keep on fighting. And that goes to the essence of what is actually going on here, which is that the American plan, and really this is all about an American plan, the Europeans and the British are minor players in this at best now. The American plan, such as it was from the beginning of the war, was only to keep the war going as long as possible. And if that means throwing billions at propping up Zelensky's government, if it means an endless supply of arms, if it means endless psychological operations, just keep the war going at all costs. And as long as you never have to get directly involved, you can always claim that there was no direct intervention by the United States against the Russian forces, which, of course, we know is not true. Given the large amount of corpses now turning up in the battle zones of uh, southwestern Russia and eastern Ukraine, which are of American either ex or very recently serving American military personnel, given the amount of helmet cams that have been captured off corpses of foreign mercenaries or foreign fighters uh, from mainly the United States, from Britain, from Poland, from a whole range of countries across Europe, 
who are doing a lot of the fighting in the east now, given that the Ukrainians are apparently running out of especially uh, trained officers, and that some of this um, work is now being done by foreign instructors acting through translators. Unconfirmed as yet, but certainly what is true is that the number of foreigners in the Ukrainian forces, this foreign legion that they've got, has grown significantly and has been bulked out principally by troops from America and often who are under contract with maybe the CIA, maybe through third parties, who knows. But certainly they are there and playing a significant role now. So the denials from the White House that they are directly involved become even more of a joke when this is revealed and it is being revealed more and more now every day. Every day more corpses turn up with American passports or American ID on them. The American military apparently know very well that this is not going to turn out on the positive side for Ukraine at all. So again, what is the plan? The plan remains as Hillary Clinton outlined it in late February and early March when she was in one of her spectacularly smug TV appearances. She said that the goal was to turn Ukraine into a quagmire for the Russians, which means no negotiations because Zelensky is not going to negotiate now because he can't. The only way out for Zelensky is to keep doing what the Americans tell him until the point when, the, he hopes, anywhere, the Americans can extract him to a villa in Miami and he can spend the rest of his days appearing on chat shows and weeping and calling to, for Americans to donate to Ukrainian freedom causes. And he's too far in deep now to retreat. He's gone in too far to sign a deal with the Russians. And unless he is overthrown or disposed of or extracted, this is going to continue. Or the authority and power of the Ukrainian state completely disintegrates and people just refuse to carry out its orders anymore. So far, that doesn't look like happening. But then again, we haven't even got to the renewed Russian assault yet with all their newly mobilized forces. Maybe the situation will change then. But at this stage, it is worth bearing in mind the statement made recently by the Secretary General of NATO, Jens Stoltenberg. Now, Stoltenberg stated very recently that the defeat of the Ukrainian forces was unacceptable because this would be seen as a defeat for NATO and therefore it could not happen. Now, that's what's known technically as a gaffe, which is where you unintentionally tell the truth because Stoltenberg, until very recently, was saying that NATO was not involved, couldn't be directly involved, they would support Ukraine, but then he lets the truth slip out. Now, maybe his mind is straying to his next job as head of Norway's central bank and he doesn't give a shit anymore, but he does rather give the game away in that sentence. But there's a, two edges to that truth, which is, yes, NATO cannot afford to be seen to lose, but NATO is not prepared to go into a direct fight with the Russians. And so this cowardly game continues of propping up the Ukrainian government and hoping it feeds ever more of the Ukrainian population into what will be a meat grinder on their eastern front. The final point I'll cover today is the Moscow Energy Summit that's going on this week. This is a summit of the various oil producing and gas producing nations that are invited along to discuss energy policy. With the Russian government, Putin gave a keynote speech to this assembly today. Putin stated that the Nord Stream pipeline sabotage was an act of terrorism, and he called it an act of international terrorism. He stated that the goal of that was to undermine energy security for the entire continent now. But of course, it wasn't the entire continent that was affected. This was an act that was principally uh, targeted at the Germans to make sure that they couldn't 
crumble to popular pressure and turn the pipeline back on, giving the Russians a big win. But of course, the sabotage wasn't entirely successful, and one of the pipelines is still intact and capable of pumping gas. The others can be repaired. And Putin stated that they were prepared to switch this on if an agreement could be reached. Of course, no word coming out of Berlin just yet on that. He also stated that, of course, the major beneficiaries of it are going to be, well, the very people who've proclaimed that they are beneficiaries of it, which is the United States. I remember Blinken called it an exciting opportunity to expand gas sales to Europe. He also stated that the recent OPEC Plus decision to cut production was taken with the aim of balancing the global marketplace. And of course, there's been a furious and uh, somewhat incoherent response to the cut of production uh, taken by OPEC Plus uh, from the United States. Various American politicians screaming that vengeance will be forthcoming on the treacherous Saudis. But of course, that rather neglects to analyze why the decision was taken. They were accusing the Saudis of dancing to the Russian tune. But of course, the Saudis are, if nothing else, capable of uh, cynically acting in their own best interests, and their own best interests were not at this stage aligned with the idea of a price cap on energy purchases. Even as though this was a policy that was aimed at the Russians, the Saudis are very aware of that it could have potential implications for them. So again, why would they do the U.S. a favor when the U.S. is trying to use the world oil market to bring pressure to bear on a political rival? And so the Saudis, of course, came up with the idea of the production cut, according to the account from the Saudis and the Russians. It wasn't something that the Russians pushed them into. It was something that the Saudis did in order to protect their own interests, which the United States has fought for a long time are interests that should be aligned with them. But it seems that their one-time ally is uh, straying away from them. And of course, if the United States chooses to enact some kind of vengeance or sanction upon the Saudis, if they, for instance, cut off uh, military aid or so-called military aid, then the Saudis will just buy weapons off the Russians. So the U.S. is potentially shooting itself in both feet if they choose to pursue this row any further. Putin also said in his address that the Russians were ready to uh, resupply Europe with gas for this winter and that um, the European energy crisis was, of course, the product of the actions of the European leaders, which he is undoubtedly correct about, given that it's the European leaders themselves who have run headlong into this sanctions policy, which is seemingly damaging everybody else other than the government in Moscow. So that's it for the first daily bulletin covering the Ukraine war. I'll be back tomorrow with more on some of these stories and more as the Frontline develops. Keep an eye on the developments around Bakhmut. See if anything changes there within the next 24 hours. But until then, thank you for listening, and I'll be back with you again tomorrow.